God's call on your life. What is it? Bill Hendricks is president of the Giftedness Center, a Dallas-based consulting firm specializing in organizational effectiveness and individual career guidance. He is the author or co-author of 22 published books. He holds an undergraduate degree in English from Harvard University, a Master of Science in Mass Communications from Boston University, and a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies from the Dallas Theological Seminary. In this lecture, God's Call on Your Life, What Is It?, Bill Hendricks discusses his latest book, The Person Called You, Why You're Here, Why You Matter, and What You Should Do With Your Life, and How to Find and Follow One's Purpose. Well, thank you, Kathy. Thank you for hosting us in your home. Thank you, thank you Joel and the C.S. Lewis Institute for allowing me to come. It's a real honor to be here. You, you got to understand somebody who comes from the outside and hears that, okay, we're, we're going to we're going to have a meeting and, and uh, you discover that the, the announced topic is what should I do with my life and then you discover that basically it sort of sold out like they, they cut off how many people could come and you say well where is this meeting going to be? Well it's going to be in Washington DC. You kind of conclude that you're probably speaking to a room full of um, whoever the incumbent party is coming off the, on midterm elections <laughs> whose president is in the second part of his uh, presidency and they're all got their resumes out here circling and they're trying to figure out what they should do with their life. So I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I, I appreciate you all braving the elements to come out here tonight and, uh, and uh, be here. Um, but I will say that this whole question, what should I be doing with my life, is, is really become a universal question for, for countless people in our culture. And it's not just millennials that are asking that question, although I would say that for any millennial, THE number one question on their mind at some core level is what should I do with my life? But being a boomer, uh, and I said this to a group of college students uh, last week, I said, let me let you in on a dirty little secret. Your parents are asking exactly the same question. What should I be doing with my life? They may not ask it that way. The way they may ask it is more, what should I have done with my life? Like they may be very successful. I work with a lot of people that have done very well in their careers and they have nothing to apologize for from a success standpoint. But deep down there's this dis-ease, there's this kind of angst that they live with about, yeah, but what should I really have done with my life? And you know, this, this dovetails with some research that the Barna Institute uh, has done. Last February they asked a whole representative sample of Americans um, and they discovered that a full 75% of Americans would like more meaning in their life. Like they feel like their lives don't really amount to much. They're kind of purposeless. Now to me this makes all the sense in the world, particularly for boomers who have grown up and, and, and lived in a culture their whole lives that basically a, a, there's, a, there's a whole narrative in this culture that says that your real purpose if you want to call it that, your purpose in life is to contribute to the gene pool so that whatever species survives ours two million years from now or whenever is better qualified to contend with the environment that it will face at that point in time. I don't know about you, but that's not really a lot to build a meaningful life on, right? I mean, to me, it's not all that meaningful to feel like I'm just a chromosome factory, okay? But that's, that's where many people are today. But here's, here's what really struck me about the Barna research. They asked people who are, are what they called active Christians. 
not just nominal Christians, but people who, you know, you and me, like we're really trying to live at our faith. And, and a full 60% of those people said that they believed with some conviction that God has a calling for their life. But they don't have a clue what that calling is. Now, if you stop and think about that, to me that's kind of disturbing on many levels, but not the least of which is, I don't know how you build much trust or confidence or, I dare say, intimacy with God if you believe that He's put you here for a purpose, but you don't know what that purpose is. It's a little bit like me asking my wife, Lynn, Lynn, trust me, I want you to go to the store and I have a purpose for you going to the store. So she goes to the mall and she kind of waits for a while and, you know, looks around and she's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And she calls me and I say, oh, trust me. No, there's a purpose. Hang in there. Trust me. I mean, I think that would actually raise more suspicion than trust. You know, she'd be thinking, so what is Bill doing at home that he wants me at the mall, right? No, what would really engender trust is if she goes to the mall and when she gets there, somebody says, ma'am, may I help you? And she says, well, I'm, I'm Lynn Hendricks. And they go, oh, you're Lynn Hendricks. Oh, we are so glad to see you. Why, we have this wonderful thing prepared for you. Come, we have clothes, we have shoes, we have jewelry, and your husband has made all of this possible. She would be ecstatic. <clears throat> now, let me set expectations here. Lynn, that's not gonna happen, okay? I'm, this, this is just an illustration, okay? Right. Well, I'm suggesting that, in fact, that's exactly what God has done. That when I say there's a purpose for you, that like there really is something where when you show up for it, it's like, oh, my gosh, you're here. Now you get to live into it. Well, uh, the question, though, would be, well, so that's great, Bill, but how do I find that calling? Like, how do I know what that is? I don't know how long you've kind of been around the faith, but I'll tell you where I'm coming from. I've been going to church since nine months before I was born, okay? There's never been a time in my life when I haven't been part of the church, okay? Which means that from the time I was a little kid until now, which is about 60 years, I've been hearing the answer to the question, how do I find my calling? And it's well known, and many of you have probably heard it, and it boils down to about three basic points. It is, read your Bible, pray, and seek godly counsel. Have you ever heard that? And sometimes there's a fourth that's thrown in, and it's, it's seek the leading of the Lord. And, and, and what that is is kind of a, it's, a, it's an exit strategy. It's a, it's a soft landing, both for the person that gives the advice, because what they're basically saying is, I, I don't really know the answer to that question. That gives them an out. And it's also a soft landing for the person that gets the advice, because then they can kind of go do whatever they're going to do, and they can say, well, you know, the Lord led me to do that. And so they kind of have an out. So read your Bible, pray, seek guidance. Well, how's that working for us? You know, if 60% of those of us who are involved in the church still don't feel like we have a sense of calling, I, I don't think that's actually working too well for us, do you? Don't you wish when it came to the, this question, what should I do with my life, this issue of calling, you had an owner's manual on you? 
an owner's manual. Don't you wish you had an owner's manual if you have kids? You know, like if you're going to work on a car or a computer or some sophisticated piece of equipment, you check the owner's manual first, right? To find out what was this machine designed to do? What does it do best? What does it take to get it to do that? What other pieces of equipment does it need around it to, to, to function most effectively? And maybe the most important thing, you know, what are the warning labels on this piece of equipment? Whatever you do, don't do that with this piece of equipment. Don't you wish you had that on yourself? Well, I'm going to suggest that there actually is a kind of an owner's manual on you. And, and it's, it gets into this, this whole phenomenon of what we call human giftedness. Human giftedness. My whole work is around giftedness. The name of my consulting practice in Dallas is the Giftedness Center. What is giftedness? And by the way, when I say a phenomenon, like gravity is a phenomenon, okay? You don't have to know anything about gravity to take advantage of it. It's just the way the world is. Well, there's a phenomenon about human beings. And you don't have to know anything about it to take advantage of it. And most people don't know much about it at all except at an extremely rudimentary level. But we call it people's giftedness. And the way it works is this. For every human being, there's a very unique and distinctive way that they function. It's a pattern. It's a motivational and a behavioral pattern in their life. They come back to it again and again and again and again. And the reason they do that is because that's, in fact, how God's wired them to do life. So if you want a definition of giftedness, it would be this. Giftedness is the inborn core strengths and natural motivation that you instinctively use to do things that you find satisfying and productive. Giftedness is not just about what you can do. It's about what you're born to do what you enjoy doing and what you do well. Everybody does some particular thing with great satisfaction. And so for one person, they love to solve problems. They never met a problem that they didn't like to solve. From the time they were a little kid until the present, life has been one problem after another to solve. They, they see the whole world as a problem to be solved. Frankly, they see all the people in their life as problems to be solved. Okay. But then over here is somebody who doesn't see life that way at all. Instead, what they want to do is understand something at a very deep level, you know, and drill down and, and, and really get an encyclopedic knowledge of that thing and oftentimes express that knowledge to other people. And then over here is somebody who does something completely different. What they want to do is build things and form things and develop things and shape them. And so they come up with a lot of finished products. And then over here is somebody who wants to gain a response from people, get people to, to react to them, to influence their behavior. I could go on, on all night about the different kinds of, of giftedness that we see, but everybody has something, and it's different for every person. And let me just clarify. When I talk about giftedness, I'm not talking about the unusual, the spectacular. You know, we think of the, the Michael Jordans of the world, the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, the, the gifted athlete, the gifted musician. Well, I'm not arguing that there aren't people who, who use their giftedness at a very elevated level, <clears throat> but it turns out that giftedness is, is common to us all. It's, it's a universal phenomenon. And it's even seen in the mundane. Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter what somebody's intelligence is. It doesn't matter what their socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter what their educational attainments are. 
it doesn't even matter how damaged they may be psychologically. For every single human being on the planet, we can demonstrate that there's a pattern of behavior that they come back to again and again and again in their unique way. And the reason they come back to that is because life makes sense when they do it that way. And it feels satisfying. In my book, I talk about, I, I give an illustration of this pattern using somebody that everybody's heard of named Warren Buffett, you know, the investor. And we have a wonderful uh, set of data facts, data points from a biography that was written about his life called The Snowball, Alice Schrader, who's a New York Times uh, reporter, I believe, and she took a year off or so to document his life. And she went back and she discovered that when this little boy Warren was, was maybe, maybe five or six years old, she said from a very early age, he, he manifested this extreme interest, almost an obsession with numbers. I mean, to the point where, I don't know what you did as a kid, Warren would sit on the streets of Omaha and he would memorize license plates. He'd watch the cars go by and for him it was very important to somehow know these numbers on these plates and see which cars came by frequently and, and, and even do some math with these. He would sit in church and like you and me, he'd be bored with the sermon as a kid. So he'd pull out the hymn book and he'd look at the composer's birth dates and death dates and he would do the math on how old they were when he died. He thought the sort of actuarial numbers were somehow important and isn't it interesting that his company today, Berkshire Hathaway, owns Geico Insurance, you know. Um, he, his favorite, well, he, he would, he would uh, he'd get packs of gum and he'd sell them. And I'm talking like at like five, six, seven years of age. He would buy uh, cartons of Coca-Cola, uh, six each uh, for a nickel each and then, or, or for 25 cents, and then he'd, he'd sell the carton individually for five cents a piece and make a, a five cent profit off of that. Just as a little boy, his favorite, his favorite toy was what's called a money changer. <laughs> for those of you who are under about 35 years of age, in this culture we used to use something called money. <laughs> it wasn't plastic. It wasn't plastic, it wasn't PayPal, like there were these pieces of paper and these coins and, and they actually meant something. Um, and you'd go like to the fair or you'd go to the ball game and you'd, you'd hand somebody a dime for a hot dog and, and the hot dog cost like five cents and they'd have to make change. And they wore like a, a, this little contraption around their belt that they could count out the change. It was a money changer. Well, that was Warren Buffett's favorite toy as a boy growing up, okay. And this obsession with numbers continued throughout his childhood. And he, he, he noticed that, that the, the concept occurred to him, what we now call compound interest, but that numbers, a small sum could grow into a huge fortune over time. It was like a snowball accumulating snow, hence the name of the biography. And, and, and the story goes on how he, he ultimately gets under his mentor in New York City and uh, kind of learns investments and, and then the mentor retires and he didn't want to live in New York City, so he moves back to Omaha. He talks like five or six family friends and so forth to uh, each put up like, you know, $20,000, $50,000, whatever it was. He put in $100 and uh, he invests all this and the rest, as they say, is history. 
there's a lifelong pattern that you can document in his life around numbers and, and the, the accumulation of, of numbers. This is true for every human being. You go back in their life and you discover there's a history of something that they come back to again and again that's very satisfying to them. And if you catch on to this pattern, that pattern is very predictive in terms of career success and satisfaction. So in my book, of which we have copies here tonight, the title of which is The Person Called You, Why You're Here, Why You Matter, and What You Should Do With Your Life, I, I talk about this whole phenomenon of human giftedness and explain what it means and then how you discover it and, and then the implications of how to use that information to find meaningful work as well as the implications for relationships. Why is this so important? Why am I you know, extremely exercised about this whole thing? Why have I made my career around it? Well, there's many reasons, not the least of which is giftedness lies at the heart of this whole matter of calling. It lies at the heart of the whole matter of calling. If you think of human beings like tools, and I don't mean to, to, to objectify us, I'm just saying if every tool is designed for a particular purpose and every human being is designed for a particular purpose, then it follows that, that by analogy we're like tools. And so we have some hammers, we have some saws, we have some screwdrivers, and, and uh, you know everybody's got a function to carry out, which means there's certain tasks that have their name on it, and there's certain tasks that don't. And there's actually biblical precedent for this. If you go to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, Paul doesn't use the term giftedness, but he uses the term workmanship. And in verse 10, he says, we are God's workmanship. And what that means is that we're his made thing, his crafted thing. And the image here is of an artisan in first century Greece, and he's working, say, clay. And, and, and there he is with, with this clay on a wheel and he's fashioning some vessel out of that clay. Because it's God's hands that are on the clay, it's a masterpiece. But, but work with me here. If the, if, if the potter fashions the clay one way, it's perfect for holding wine or water. If he fashions the clay another way, the vessel that he creates is perfect for holding grain or bread. If he fashions that clay yet another way, that vessel is perfect for pouring oil in and putting a wick in and burning as a lantern. You see, those design features give that vessel functionality, which has the idea of purpose to it. And that's why the verse goes on to say that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, those aren't just generic good works, you know, like helping little old ladies across the street and feeding the homeless. Yeah, those are good works. They ought to be done. But in light of that word workmanship, those are specific good works tied to the nature of the workmanship which means if you figure out somebody's workmanship, that is their giftedness, you now know what purpose they were put here to do. And the verse goes on to say that all of this was prepared beforehand, which means in eternity, that we would walk in them, that is that we'd carry them out. So if you boil all that down into a sentence in plain English, it, it kind of comes out like this. From eternity, God looks out on the 21st century. He sees certain good works that he once done. To get them done, he dreams up a person, the person we now call by your name. And at just the right point in time and space, he fashions you, as it were, with his own hands, and he places you in the world. And you are now the perfect vessel, the perfect tool for those specific good works. 
which means there really is work out here. There's a function out here that has your name on it. But now, we're not quite there yet because let's imagine that we have a tool that doesn't know what it was designed to do. So let's take, for instance, a hammer. Imagine I have a hammer and the hammer doesn't know what it was designed to do. What's it going to do? Well, hammers are going to always do what they're designed to do. They cannot do otherwise, which means they're going to hit things, which means they're going to hit furniture, which means they're going to hit glass, which means they're going to hit heads. Hammers are going to do what hammers are going to do, right? But they may not do it for the purpose for which they were designed to do it. And what's needed is for somebody to come along and say, hey, pal, don't you understand? And they show them a nail. Here, hit this thing. And when that hammer hits the nail, it feels the nail go in and it goes, oh, wow, that feels wonderful. That's what I was put here to do. Right. Now, any nail will do. And you've now helped that hammer discover what it was put here to do. Well, that's what I'm trying to do, is to help people figure out and understand what God put them here to do. And the reason I do that is because we got a lot of hammers along with a lot of other tools that don't know what they were put here to do. The proof of that is some Gallup statistics that they keep every year since 2000 on what they call employee engagement. Engagement means the extent to which people feel emotionally engaged or connected to their work. And so the most recent statistics they have is from 2012, in which they discovered that about 30% of American workers feel engaged. That is, I like my job. I, I feel, you know, some meaning in it. I'm, I'm attached to it. But that means that 70% are not engaged. 52% are what they call unengaged. And for them, their work is, well, you know, it's a job. It's okay. But their heart's not in it. Their heart's not in it. Imagine Linda and I are going to get on a plane tomorrow and fly to Boston. Imagine we get on that plane and our pilot is part of that 52%. It, it's a job. It's, it's, it's a job. But his heart's not in it. Imagine tonight on the way home, you have a medical emergency and you have to go to the hospital. And the nurse that's there to help you, it's, it's, it's a job. You know, I, I don't hate it, but her, not, her, her or his heart's not in it. But then there's another 18% or what they call actively disengaged. Like they're mad about it. They hate their job. And it turns out they actually undermine and sabotage the work that the 30% who are engaged are trying to do. 70% of our workforce is unengaged. I don't know about you, but, but the, re, the, the economic repercussions of that are beyond imagining. If we could even get that up to 40% are engaged, or by golly, 50% engaged, can you imagine what the GDP of our country would be? I just, it, our, our, our civilization would be transformed. And so that's really why I wrote the book, is to help people discover what their giftedness is, and then in addition, to help people, help other people discover what their giftedness is. Some of you are, are in a perfect position to be what I call giftedness coaches. In the back of the book is an exercise. You could actually use that book as a tool with people that you're mentoring and working with 
to help them wake up to their giftedness. It's a very simple exercise where a person tells some stories and then we look for some patterns. There's not a test or an inventory. Uh, and, and I'll just end this whole presentation before we take a few questions and, 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 and say that, you know, I want to admit that human beings are exceedingly complex. And so giftedness doesn't explain everything there is to know about human beings. But I would say that the discovery of giftedness is nothing short of transformative. At least it can be. And I say that out of my own life history. Because you see, when I was 30 years old, my wife at the time said, listen, I've put you through two graduate programs and I'm tired of paying for school. I'm gonna stay home and have babies. You get out there and make some money. So she kind of called the question and I had to figure out, so what are you gonna do, Bill? And I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know. And people are coming to me saying, oh, Bill, you know, you went to Harvard. Um, you have two master's degrees. You can do whatever you want to do. And I was like, well, that may be, but I don't know what I want to do. I was like a lot of you in this room. You're bright. You're accomplished. You have degrees. You have education. You may have experience. But at your core, you're thinking, I'm flying blind here. I don't really know what I'm called to do. It was about that time that somebody put me through this exact same process that I've got in the book and that I'm presenting here. I will tell you that it was like somebody turned on the light in a pitch black room that I'd been stumbling around in. And as soon as the lights were on, I looked around and I went, oh my gosh, now I get it. Now I know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And I've been using the information and the insight that I gained from that literally every week since to the present day to make intelligent choices about what I should do, what I shouldn't do. This will sound like an over-the-top statement, but I mean it quite sincerely. Next to my salvation in Christ, which happened for me, fortunately, at a very early age, next to my salvation in Christ, nothing in my life has had it as profound and far-reaching an impact as knowing my own giftedness. It's made all the difference in the world. And so when I looked out in our culture and I saw so many people str struggling and stumbling, and particularly so many millennials, tens of millions of millennials, who, who are lost as lambs now, because we don't know how to get people from high school graduation into the adult world of work. I said, Bill, have you learned anything in the last 20 years of working with giftedness that might be useful at a time like this? And I decided, well, yeah, I could, I could put this in a book and get it out there to people.